This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. You, you mean the real Moses. The real Moses sat down. The real M-O-S-E-S. That is, that is his name. And he wrote it um, or it's the the, yeah. the... the the big Mo himself. With in Hebrew, um, on paper, or some something equivalent. Not Maybe not paper, I, but, you know, sheepskin or whatever. Yeah, I think he had his laptop, actually. <laughs> How confident can we be in the historicity and authorship of the Bible? Professor Matthew Thomas explains on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Adinitz, and I will be asking interesting people who have thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, and why we think we know it. I hope this format in relationship and dialogue and back and forth may help us approach the truth and to have a really good time doing it. If you should want to take the conversation a step further, I invite you to please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today's guest, Matthew Thomas, is Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies and Theology Department Chair at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, which is part of UC Berkeley's Graduate Theological Union, where he teaches the Old and New Testaments, Patristics, and Biblical Languages. He completed his Doctorate of Philosophy in Theology at the University of Oxford and wrote his dissertation about how the writings of St. Paul were understood in the second century, which has been published as a book as well, Uh, and also recently called by Father Stephen DeYoung of the Whole Council blog, easily the most important work in Pauline studies and likely in biblical studies as a whole of the current decade. He met his wife at Regent College in Vancouver, where they were both taking the same Hebrew class. And now the couple has four children, all of whom are also aspiring theologians. So welcome, Matthew, for being part of this podcast and for joining me for our second episode ever. And I think it will be a good one. Thank you very much, Chris. Just so you know, it is possible that those aspiring children will come and break through the door at any point. So if that happens, I will I will alert you. Good. I will have some questions ready for the for the. <laughs> they're actually you know they're they're pretty they're pretty good at them. The um my daughter, she's the oldest one, Camille. She's incredible, and she how has, old is how old is Camille? She's she's seven. She has the most incredible theological questions, and so she asked me. This was a, this was a few months back. She was asking me if when Pharaoh's son died because of Pharaoh's sins whether or not there was some kind of redemptive value in in his death Um, because he of course is dying for his own father's sins he's not dying for his for his own kind of sins and i just thought that's an incredible question i love that and we probably talked for like 10 15 minutes about it and we kind of came to there probably in some way there was probably some sort of grace involved with that. Yeah. If like, if God recognizes all sort of like vicarious suffering as, um, you know, being in some way significant, um, that there's probably something significant to that as well. Even if we can't necessarily spell out from the text, like how that exactly all went and worked. Um, she's just incredible. She blows me away. She's, she's, she's better than I am. And she's seven. So, yeah, well, and and uh, all right, um, possibly future guest. <laughs> but uh, tell us, tell us about yourself. Tell us about yourself and how you came to be a theologian. Yeah, so I'm from uh, uh, the East Bay area uh, here in California, and um, you know, it's I guess it's a surprise that I do the kinds of things that I do because I, you know, I'm not from a Christian background or anything like that. I didn't have a Christian family growing up. Um, but, uh, became a Christian at a pretty young age. I was, I was nine. 
and um, you made made a really big impact in, in my life uh, with the, the kind of background that I, I had growing up. And uh, so the faith has been something that's been really important to me since since then. And just knowing the difference I you know, can can make in you know your actual real real life and everything. And so um, I uh, I didn't didn't originally go to school uh, to to study theology. I went to, to Pepperdine for undergraduate and was uh, doing political science, international studies, things like that. And um, felt a pretty strong call to go into uh, into you know to ministry work, and so um, I ended up, you know after graduating left all that and uh, went into working in um, an inner city ministry in Oakland, uh, working with uh, basically running an after school program for kids there at this place called uh, Harbor House Ministries, uh, which is a uh, yeah just great great ministry which is still still running today, and uh, was was doing that running an after school program and then teaching scripture as as part of that. And it was uh, just a fantastic place to be able to serve and to be able to kind of share what God had, um, you know, given to me and done in my life through some difficult kinds of contexts and situations from, you know, from when I was younger and growing up and to be able to serve and, you know, for kids who are going through kind of analogous experiences and everything. So that was fantastic. And um, honestly, I'm, I'm so surprised that I'm not doing that to this day because it still is such a big part of our lives. And, um, you know, it's hard to, when I was doing it, it's hard to imagine anything else. At that point, I was I was you know teaching the Bible every every day over there, and I'd starting to learn uh, biblical Greek. And there's so many things in Scripture that I felt like you know I didn't really understand fully in English. And then when I started looking at it in Greek, I'm like, oh, that totally makes sense. That that answers this question. I've always I never really understood this passage. And then you you, know, you look in the original language, and it's like, oh, this is great. So. I was doing this on my own just because I, you know, I loved it. And it was part of the teaching that I was, you know, doing for these kids in Oakland. And I was like, huh, well, maybe, maybe I should, you know, learn more about this and, you know, kind of, kind of put whatever academic gifts God has, has given me to try to put them to use in this area. And so I ended up going to grad school up at Regent College in Vancouver, uh, which is an incredible place. And um, that's where my, my wife and I met in the Hebrew class. And I've basically just kind of been pursuing what, you know, the, the things that God has, has opened up. And so, um, you know, the, the book that I, I wrote there, I, you know, it came out of a, a paper that I wrote, um, just my first year, uh, over at, at the school there, which was itself rooted in some of the questions that I had come from, from, you know, working in Oakland, um, you know, just in that, in that kind of, kind of context. And I've just continued to, to follow the sorts of things that, uh, yeah, that, that the doors that have opened. And so, um, you know, there's a door to you know, open to go do this doctor work in Oxford. And so when, you know, pursue that with the, the research that I was doing, which I kind of stumbled a bunch across of, a bunch of stuff that uh, seemed to be helpful for New Testament studies that a lot of New Testament scholars uh, just hadn't had an opportunity to really consider and um, some of what they were doing with interpretation of St. Paul. And, um, and then, yeah, I had the door open to come back here and be teaching teaching in Berkeley and so um it's honestly it's a it's a huge surprise for me but I'm I'm grateful because I you know I love I love this material I love what I do and I think it's just on a again you kind of practical lived uh you know real life basis um you know I know how how big of a difference and how much this means in my life and um, the lives of people around me and stuff so it's uh yeah it's just a, a joy and an honor to be able to serve in this kind of way well, that's perfect. It's a beautiful story, and it's uh, it's it shows me for one thing that you're exactly the person I want to ask these questions to. Uh, <laughs> you you say um, we know the Bible is written in Greek, but we also know that Jesus was speaking in Aramaic. Yeah. How did it? How did? How was it uh, recorded? Well, let me back up. Yeah. Um, first, I'm going to share my half-educated view of the Bible, and then you correct it, and we'll we'll, we'll start talking that, about the that New Testament. That sounds fantastic. Um, so. Um, so the Old Testament is the recorded summary of many centuries of oral tradition. And I mean, I'm under the impression that these ancient stories were written down long after they were composed, like a, like an epic saga, like Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. While by comparison, the New Testament is almost a work of journalism, let's say, written by people who are eyewitnesses or the students of eyewitnesses, intimately acquainted with the, with the events they describe. Hmm. The implication here is that a Christian need not defend the historicity of Noah's Ark or the harsher pronouncement of uh, God wiping out some rival tribe of the Hebrews, right? And the, uh, however, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is both truth and fact. 
the defining event of our faith. So yeah. is that right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. So that's a great starting point. So we can start with the New Testament one first. Okay. Um, because yeah. I think with what you said with respect to the New Testament, I think that that is accurate largely. And I think that that's something where um, depend, you know, kind of regardless of whether one is um, operating within, uh, you know, a faith-based, um, you know, academic context or an, an academic context, which is trying to bracket kind of existential faith commitments, etc. Um, that's still generally what is regarded as being accurate and that these documents are written down either within the lifetimes or within living memory of those uh, who, you know, were active in the, you know, the participants and what was actually go- going on. So in that sense, um, while you wouldn't necessarily call them, you know, journal as a genre, uh, they are, you know, that's actually not a bad way to go and to look at it in that it is reporting what are either current events or reporting events that, you know, were current within the living memory of those who went and wrote wrote them. When it comes to the Old Testament, I actually think that the the healthiest thing that one can have here um, is a healthy dose of dose of agnosticism, um, and that might not, that might be sort of a strange thing that uh, to hear from a uh, you know a, a, a biblical scholar saying, hey, you know, be agnostic, um, or at least try to cult- cultivate this. Um, but when it comes to the Old Testament, the, the nature of the evidence that we have is such that it can be really reasonably argued and interpreted in a pretty wide variety of ways. And there's people that I know um, and scholars that I know who, uh, you know, are very intelligent, both those who, you know, profess to, you know, hold to, you know, traditional, uh, you know, faith and those, those who don't, who have really widely varying views as far as when were these things actually written, written down. Um, and if they were written down, say, uh, you know, at a more recent date, uh, and not you know far off. What kind of sources were they making use of? Were they themselves making use of things that that that, that predated them? How do you how do you get to all that? Um, I think that from a standpoint, if you're thinking of hey, this you know we're on the uh, or the uh, the almost good Catholic podcast. Um, I think that one can be uh, you know an almost good good Catholic and actually hold to a pretty wide uh, range of views for how the Old Testament itself goes and comes into existence, or, you know, you can say the age of the documents themselves. So how, how far do they, they go back to? I think that you can do that faithfully because the evidence is such that it can just be in- interpreted uh, quite reasonably in a number of different ways. And so I know, I know people who I regard as, you know, faithful and very intelligent who hold to much more traditional, you know, positions, uh, either something like mosaic authorship or something close to that in some way that, you know, Moses is, is involved in a, uh, you know, a process of, of authorship. And I know people who... No, are, you are, mean are the thick- real Moses. The real Moses sat down. The real M-O-S-E-S. That is that is his name. And he wrote um, it or it's the... the yeah. The, the the big Mo himself. With in Hebrew um, on paper or some something equivalent. Not maybe not paper, I, but you know, sheepskin or whatever. Yeah, I think he had his laptop actually. <laughs> um I'm I new evidence of ancient Egyptian laptops has yeah. uh has come to light and I I believe that's the most recent theory is that it was uh ancient Egyptian laptop. That explains that, why uh, there's that, a that, bite that, out of this apple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what's interesting is, you know, if if one is if if one is looking at the way that memory is preserved throughout history. Um and that's when we're getting to really, really ancient history, that's tough because it's almost always stuff that's very frag- fragmentary. But when we're looking at the the earliest preserved memories that we have of Moses, they always preserve it as Moses was a writer. He's a writer. And that's not something that you necessarily go and say about everybody um, or that, you know, is, is preserved for every kind of figure, uh, which is, in a sense, distinct about about Moses, that, that, he, that he was a writer. So that's at least the way that he was remembered. Well, then how does that work in relation to what we have in the book of Genesis, Exodus, all these other ones? And does it necessarily mean that, you know, we have Moses at his laptop going through the desert? 
Um, and you know, I was stuck for 40 years going out there and just thinking like, well, I gotta do, I gotta do something. We're stuck here for 40 years. Um, not, not necessarily, not necessarily because again, there's all kinds of ways you can put this together as far as, uh, it is, it's, it's very, very possible that what you have in, uh, you know, different instances. So say you're talking about the author, authorship of the Pentateuch, um, is that you, you have later authors who are compiling or putting together, uh, things that are preserved from earlier generations. And, um, and and it's possible that there are things that are, in a sense, historical updatings to go and to translate into what is going to be intelligible within that, within that period. So there's there's all kinds of ways that you can go and I think faithfully put together that that data. What I, what I, what I would say I have less sympathy for, um, I have less sympathy for those who are really dogmatic on things that we just I don't I don't think are uh, have a strong um, and clear and consistent rational basis to be dogmatic about and so and, and this goes in both directions so I think you can have those who are um, you know maybe maybe a bit sort of like overly presentist or modernist in in the way that it's whatever is the latest thing in historical scholarship that this must this must be the the truth this must be the right thing therefore this all we know this comes from the sixth century the fifth century whatever whatever ha- ha- happens to mm-hmm. be. Um, I think that if you have a wide range, and if you look at biblical scholarship over the centuries, you can see how whatever the latest theory is, it tends to be good for about forty-five minutes, and that's <laughs> and it's just yeah. that's just the way uh, that's just the way that that shifts, yeah. you know, happen. And so you don't want to you don't want to have myopia and to only be able to see what the most recent. I really appreciate that humility of this is yeah. what we have, and we just can't say too much, but we can say exactly. some things. So, yeah, so you don't you don't want to be myopic in that direction and thinking that you know oh we we absolutely know and we're dogmatic about whatever the latest idea is is absolutely what it happens to be. Nor do you want to be dogmatic, I think, in the other direction and say, I know that Moses had a laptop. I yeah. just know it. I'm 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 positive. I uh, I I went and I did the work on Hebrew and I saw that there was actually the word for laptop back there, <laughs> and so I can go and say because I think even those who um, are, I guess you can say most traditionally minded and, you know, want to be most, uh, faithful to the tradition of the church. I think that you still have to recognize that there's a lot of unknowns that are there and there's a lot of good scholarly questions that are asked. And so when we're dealing particularly with things that are, you know, older in the old Testament, I think that we have to, in a sense, be at peace and be satisfied with our own, you know, our own relative ignorance of lack of knowledge, because we're dealing with really, really ancient stuff. When we're dealing with more recent books of, you know, in the Old Testament. So if you're saying, for instance, you know, my, my wife and I, we uh, we wrote the the commentaries for the Ignatius Study Bible on the books of First and Second Maccabees. Um, those ones are are in a different category um, because they are relatively speaking from such a more recent historical period, and so you can actually date those books with a you know, pretty good range, range of confidence, you know, perhaps, you know, I get, you know, a 30 year kind of range or a fit, a 50 year, year range. And so speaking generally, the closer that you get in history to, to where we are, the more evidence that we have preserved historically to be able to say with confidence, we know this fits within this range. I think that makes sense. Can you tell us about the first century or, or do you want to talk about Maccabees first? I, I don't want to interrupt. Oh no, that's that's totally fine. Okay. I was I was just going to say uh, if so if you're thinking with you know with with what we have in in Maccabees, so you know the events are going to take place is around you know 165 BC. We have a lot of historical context preserved from that period, and so we can we can date these things pretty easily, and that holds true as well for the books of the New Testament in general. Um, you know, it's not hard and fast, but uh, in general, we can date these things within a pretty reasonably small range um and it's just as as you go back farther within within history this gets more and more difficult because there's just less history preserved around there you know if these uh you know if we're going all the way back we're getting close to you know prehistoric times and guess what in prehistoric times there's no recorded history so we don't really know and so because of that you can really you can make any you can make any uh theory uh that you want to um you can throw out pretty much anything you like hey moses wrote this on his laptop and the thing is it's hard to disprove it in the same in the sense that it's hard to disprove 
anything when you're talking about really, really ancient history because there's such fragmentary evidence that we're going by. Okay, so 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked among us, spoke in Aramaic. People saw him by the thousands. How did that end up into this uh, new American Bible revised edition in English sitting on my table over here how did it get from <laughs> from the, how did it get from there to saint jerome who wrote it down in latin who who read who read it hebrew in bethlehem but had these greek sources and how did the yeah. aramaic turn into greek and how did they keep that greek for those first hundred years um, are there early copies what's the earliest copy of the gospel of john for instance that you know somebody can say this is the gospel of john and this is the year that somebody wrote it down yeah Chris, you're gonna you're gonna have me here all day. You're gonna have your listeners here all day. Well, you can't. I got. I don't have all day, but I would love to do it again. <laughs> I'd love to do it again next week no, and next month or whatever you got. Yeah, <laughs> I just want you to know how dangerous it is to ask a nerd question. That's like perfect. This, I can I can just go on for forever. <laughs> so if let's let's start with what you're saying with with Aramaic because I think that's an interesting one, um, because it is often brought in that you know Aramaic is kind of the the previous lingua franca, if you're going back to, um, you know, when you have the, you know, the, the Babylonian exile, then Persia goes and takes over. Um, Aramaic kind of becomes that original lingua franca before Alexander the Great, before they take over. And because you have, uh, you know, the Jews over there within the Babylonian captivity and then within that sphere of influence, uh, Aramaic, which is closely related to Hebrew, goes and takes over as this is the language that people can go and to speak from different people groups. And so a, a Jew speaking Hebrew is not going to, you know, sort of Persian overlord isn't going to be able to do that one quite as easily. But uh, or again, if it's not necessarily a political thing, just for trade, commerce, etc. Um, Aramaic is that language of communication. So you have both Hebrew and Aramaic around in that period. And, and Aramaic is still um, I guess you could say at a uh, at at your popular ground level is the most common spoken language within within Jesus' day. Um, however, you had had Alexander the Great, and when Alexander the Great, you know, uh, you know, around 300 BC, uh, when he goes and takes over everything, and then just suddenly dies, uh, what happens is that Greek language and culture goes and spreads everywhere. And so what Aramaic had kind of been within previous centuries, Greek had increasingly gone and taken over. And so it was that language that, you know, people use to, con you know, conduct commerce and to go and to speak between different, you know, people groups and language groups, uh, more so than, than Aramaic. Aramaic itself was now fairly localized within, you know, places like Palestine. And so it is actually interesting the way that Jesus, you know, he's recorded as as speaking Aramaic, um, it situates him within a specific, you know, geographic region and time. There's a sort of specificity to the, you know, to the incarnation and what's happening. Um, at the same time, you have other languages that are, you know, active that people are using all the time. And so you have Hebrew as kind of the cultural inheritance, particularly of the Jews, which is still active. Um, but more than that uh, is Greek. Um, and this is actually my, uh, when I was a master student, this is what I, the question that I focus on is uh, the use of Greek within Palestine at the time of Jesus. And uh, what's remarkable is really how pervasive Greek language and culture was and in Christ's own time, uh, just throughout, you know, the Galilee region, and then even down into Jerusalem. Um, this is one of the just kind of interesting sort of random facts, but I've always remembered as an, um, just an illustration of how, how uh, you know, how, how pervasive Greek was in this period. Um, if you look within funerary uh, inscriptions, uh, within the kind of area of Judea, so around Jerusalem, so you're kind of you, it, your your center of, of Jewish you know thought culture and the place that you're most likely to get Hebrew as you know predominant. Um, even within Christ's own time, uh, you know, kind of first first century, the majority of funerary inscriptions that are, that are written aren't themselves written in Hebrew. Huh. Um, they're written in Greek. Um, so it's 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 everywhere. Is, and, is that like can, a sort of uh, I'm appealing to the more learned kind of you know like this is the I'm trying to yeah. So it's it's interesting if you're thinking of 
you know, what you're going to have on your, uh, on your, your, you know, what's going to be on your, on your grave. Just like I might want uh, one in Latin, even though nobody on the street's going to speak it or do, do lots of people speak Greek. I, probably the Romans do, but do other people in the marketplace speak Greek to each other? It is. Yeah. It's, I think, I think that what you see is that Greek was itself the lingua franca that went and united all of the various you know regions and people groups, et cetera. And so while you have Aramaic as a more localized language, which is in itself kind of a fossil of the previous empire and is itself closer culturally to Hebrew, um, Greek is and had been for centuries what had taken over as, you know, as your, your, your big major language. And so it's really interesting. Uh, it, you know, the, the books of Maccabees are, um, they're, they're really fun illustrations of this because uh, they are both, even though they are written from the standpoint of, hey, we are, we are the Jews and you know, we're, we're, we kicked out all of these terrible, you know, Greek invaders uh, and, you know, who are trying to go and make us, uh, you know, do all these things. Um, it's interesting because the books themselves are written in Greek. Uh, this is 200 years before wow. before Christ before Christ's time. Uh, they're they're both written in Greek. Now it's thought that it was probable that First Maccabees had a Hebrew original because it, or at least it's at least uh, I think uh, plausible because it has such a Hebrew kind of Greek style. Wow. But we don't have any kind of Hebrew or Aramaic originals of it preserved. It's all in Greek. And Second Maccabees is clearly entirely in Greek. It's, you know, it's almost a like Greek kind of, you know, epic prose in a sense. And so that's even a couple centuries before Christ's own time, if you were writing anything that was going to have any, any kind of, you know, broader significance or even just significance within their own kind of cultural context, as you know, was predominantly the case for first and second Maccabees, they were still written in Greek. And so that's a, that's uh, a doubly surprising. Cause I was going to ask you is the reason the gospel appears in Greek so that it would be more widely, uh, more widely read because it's an evangelical document. Hey, here's the good news. Um, and I want everyone to know it. So I'm going to write it in a language that goes beyond just uh, first century Palestine. But Maccabees is not like that. Maccabees is written for Jews by Jews, isn't it? Yeah, there's very few people who are saying that um, the books of Maccabees are written for the salvation of all humanity. Yeah. And so, uh, so that's which I mean, I think that they're written for the benefit of all humanity, but it's, I, you know, it's a different kind of thing. It is, it is a, uh, it is a pretty localized, um, you know, national uh, kind of story. And both first and second Maccabees, okay. you know, are, writ- are writ- written in Greek a couple of centuries before, for Christ's own time. So I think you can say, you know, the question that underlies is, well, do these languages, you know, Aramaic, Hebrew, do, do they live on in any kind of way? If already centuries before, you know, Christ's time, you have what are these very nationalistic stories that are that are written in Greek? Um, but does, is there any sort of enduring place that um, these other languages have if Greek had really taken over culturally as the means of communication, both internally and then, you know, ex- externally? I mean, especially, especially ex- externally. Um, and I think that the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. Uh, it's interesting if, when you go through the writings of Josephus, um, he goes in his, his seven books on the, on the Jewish war, this is a he this is a Jewish historian. That is correct. Writing yeah. in so Greek. Jewish, yeah. So so a Jewish historian um, about a century after not sorry not a century about about a uh, about a generation after you know Christ and the apostles and so he's writing the Jewish war I believe in the nineties uh, detailing the war that went and took place from uh, sixty six to seventy uh, and so he, he's going and writing all this and it's interesting because he goes. And he, he says in the beginning that he originally composed all of this in Hebrew um, and that he then went afterwards and did all of this in Greek so that everybody's going to be able to under, understand it. And you think, gosh, that's really interesting because we don't actually have a textual history preserved of this at all. But it shows that there is still some kind of significance to you know the Hebrew language, uh, the Hebrew identity, and, when, and often when it says Hebrew, we don't actually know whether they mean Hebrew or, or Aramaic because uh, they're so kind well, of close. Right, close same together. script, same same community. Exactly, and and what, so what's interesting is you actually have a really similar story told about the Gospel of Matthew that the Ma- the Gospel of Matthew was originally written in Hebrew, which again we don't know if we're talking Aramaic or Hebrew. What's actually here? 
but there was some original version that was like that and that it then you know the the one the version that we know that gets it gets passed on is is the greek version and so it's 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 a really interesting historical parallel but is that true from, is that true that are you convinced by looking at the language philologically that yeah, that, that is the case it's a, it's a, it's a really great question so i would say i'm of two minds on that um because i think the internal evidence would push you in one direction and the external evidence would push you in another direction. I think that the internal evidence from what we have in you know, the, the, the Greek of the Gospel of Matthew, I guess you would say it's strong and clear enough Greek that it seems as though it's not just a sort of word-for-word translation of an underlying Hebrew text, which you do. And we have lots of examples of that. And when we have really, really Hebrew-sounding Greek, um, we tend to know it when you have something that's very you know, you know, literalistic in, in, its, in its translation. So the, the internal evidence would, would sort of point you against that idea. The external evidence, if we're looking at, you know, early reception, what's, you know, preserved from, you know, the, the early church fathers and the, the testimony that happened in those early centuries, um, this is something that you find early and pretty consistently that it's said that this is actually, there was something that that, that was here. Wow. And so that would that would push you in that direction to believe that, you know, there's no real reason that you would go and make make that up if it wasn't actually, actually the case. Um, so depending on, you know, honestly... Uh, I, I, w- I would say that most biblical scholars who I think tend to be, uh, you know, within the, the, you know, the current field, uh, you tend to be more moved by internal evidence than external evidence. If you're, if you're leaning, you know, if, if the, the primary weight is internal evidence, then you're probably going to say it would seem unlikely that this is a translation of something else. Um, I, I would say that just the way that I conceive of historical knowledge. Um, when you have something that is early, that's repeated a number of times, um, I tend to think that that external attestation is significant. Hmm. And so if you, if you were to put some sort of weaponry to my head and say, Hey, make a call, yeah. tell us, do you <laughs> think that there was something that was yeah. there, some early version of something? I would say, I think, I think probably, okay. I think that there probably was something, but I think that you then have to say that what was, what you see with the internal evidence is not itself reflective of a, you know, a wooden direct one-to-one translation. And I think that if you're going to look for an analogy with that, you can say there's a lot of other documents where you do have an original Hebrew or something. And then when it's actually brought into Greek, it's not trying to do the one-to-one equivalency. It's trying to do something that actually is has its own integrity as a Greek writing. And so that to me would be, if there is a Hebrew original to it, that would be the most plausible way to, to account. Right. And how would I even go about writing the most important thing that ever happened at a time when I don't have my, unlike Moses, I don't have my laptop. So I'm going to have to write this down on, on these, on these, I'm going to make notes. I'm going to write down what I remember. I'm going to circulate it among my friends who all read Aramaic. And yeah. then I'm going to say, what, do you guys remember this the same? Was that 4,000 or 5,000? Because he said 5,000 and I thought it was 4,000. Yeah. And this guy yeah. says 6,000. So, which, yeah. you know, and then we're all going to talk about it. And at some point I'm going to commit it to paper. Um, yeah. So can you tell, yeah. like, how did that, how far back can we see these ideas, this, these, you know, the most important, significant thing that ever happened? How did it get committed? Was it paper? Was it skin? Was it papyrus? How, where, how far back do we know? How do we think that happened? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting uh, when it comes to, you know, methods of composition, things like that. um, There's a lot that we can say when we get into the later centuries because we have more preserved material evidence. So if you're thinking your second, third, fourth centuries and going on from there, when you're going all the way back to the first century, if you're going to say, hey, what was this actually written, written on? Who wrote this, this, that and the other? um, You just have less less preserved evidence uh, the the place that people usually start is with the writings of saint paul because the writings of saint paul um are pretty actually pretty easy to date um so if you're going to say like um 
uh, like if you, if you think of most people will say that Paul's first writings are either uh, first, second Thessalonians or, or Galatians, depending on, you know, when and where you think Galatians was written and who, who the audience was. Um, you're most likely getting into either the late forties or early fifties oh, wow. okay. with those writings. Some, some people think that, that those are a, a bit earlier. Um, but I think that uh, just as far as hey, what's a you know kind of standard uh, within the guild um, to go into date date these writings. That's what that's when you when you have those. And so you have you have Paul clearly writing letters. And when Paul is writing letters in general, he's he's not giving you his his writings as some sort of like initial catechesis. Like hey, I have great news for you there is this guy named jesus turns out he was also god i know that sounds crazy um more information will follow tuning in for the next episode uh what's what's really interesting is in in all of his writings um it takes for granted the existence of christian communities already that takes i mean even 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 of of the church itself um it, it it, it takes these realities for, for granted. And so already in the 40s um, and in the 50s, uh, he's writing back and forth to churches addressing, you know, real practical issues these that are, they're, they're going asking. These are internal memos for a body of believers that already exists. And we're treating it like uh, supposed to go across time and space to tell new people new things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so in some sense, I mean, the fact that these documents are what they are is part of why biblical scholarship is interesting, because it would be one thing, you know, if you say, uh, I, I don't know, if you're going to take an, take an analogy, if you think of, you know, if you think of Marx was like, you know, Marx Engels, you know, uh, Communist Manifesto, it's like, you have the writing, it's there. And that writing is it sense itself kind of this like generative thing that you know other things going to follow from i know that it's a little more complicated than that but you can use that as 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 an analogy and say here is your early communist kind of thing the they get there's a whole story straight and they go and send it out what's really interesting is if you're looking at our earliest christian writings um that's that's not really the way that they work in that paul is already within a context where you have these churches that are you know that are that are worshiping, that are living, that are clearly um, stand out uh, by their thought and practice from you know the cultural context that they're a part of, both you know both Jew- Jewish and Greek, and are having to deal with all these kinds of issues. And so there's a sense in which you're uh, you're hearing one side of a telephone conversation from a, a, a you know a, a, yeah. a historical context where there's already a lot that has happened from you know whenever you date the sort of uh, life death you know, resurrection of Christ, whether it's 33 or whatever, by the time you get to the early forties, there has been a lot that has gone on. And so it's pretty, it's, 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 it's remarkable if you think of just, you know, such a small period of time to have this, this, I mean, quite remarkable growth and and development. Um, But it's also like, you know, I guess if one reads the book of Acts, that is sort of what you see as well is that, you know, you've got, uh, you have you have Pentecost, and then uh, at Pentecost, there's a lot of people that are added to the faith, and you know the whole thing escalates fairly fairly quickly. So I think that's actually, in a sense, is is corroborated by what you see in our you know the the earliest letters that we have from from the forties. I, I remember he, talking to a fellow who was explaining to me that there is an English constitution; it's just not a piece of paper. The English constitution mm. is a living tradition of customs and precedents. And they, they yeah. refer to it as a constitution, but I'm used to this American one where it says Article 1, Paragraph 1, uh, and so on. So um, I, I, what we're seeing here is a, is a tradition of a church that, you know, the, the members all understand the rules and the tradition and, and what they know, what they know that's been passed down. Um, so yeah. would then like the Gospels be, you know, for outsiders, hey, guess what? Guess what happened? Hmm. Or no? Yeah. And when would they, when so, did they come? Yeah. So those, those, those are great questions. Um I would say that I think if you're looking at, um, so it's it's easy it's easy to over, overstate this point. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis goes and talks about you know how the Gospels themselves are largely actually written for people who already believe and not okay. necessarily you know for 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 outsiders. And I think that you can 
I think that's, I would say, largely correct. Um, but you, you wouldn't want to push that too far because I do think that the Gospels themselves are, are written evangelistically. And it's interesting because they're actually used evangelistically from a very early date. If you, um, one, one of the, uh, just a really interesting uh, writing from the early church is uh, the Apology of Aristides written uh, about 125 uh, by a Christian apologist okay. named, named Aristides, who's delivering this to the emperor Hadrian. He's basically saying, hey, here's who Christians are. Um, here's how what we believe relates to what the Greeks believe, what the Jews believe, what the Egyptians believe, etc. Um, this is actually a more reasonable thing to believe. And so we think you should believe this too. Also, if you want to not kill us, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> um, and and what's, what's really interesting is there's a number of times in the apology where he goes and he appeals to the Christian writings and he tells Hadrian, hey, you can read these for yourselves. Like, you should just read our writings. Just go and read, read them. And so it's interesting already in 125 AD, there is uh, there's a sense that the Christian writings that are, that are present, um, that they are accessible. They're known. He, d- he doesn't even have to go and tell you which, which ones they are, but he just, you know, he just says, Hey, go and take this off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take, 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 take this for yourself. And also the expectation that they are going to be intelligible and in some way, you know, effective for those who are reading them, even if they're not necessarily from, from, from Christian backgrounds. And so well, you wanna, you're you wanna, also implying that there's a accepted body of, you know, a canon that we all agree what's okay and what's, what's in the group and what's not in the group, right? He doesn't have to say, read this one from my friend so-and-so, but not that one from that guy over there. Yeah, so it's interesting. I think that one can, one can push that argument I mean, perhaps too far in the sense that um, you can have Christian writings as a category without it necessarily being something that is canonically delimited, which is to say, these are the books that are Christian writings. These, these ones are, are out. And for a long time, you have, you know, you have Christian writings that are really, really valued that don't themselves go and end up making it into, you know, the, the canon of scripture, um, which are, and, and it, which I think do continue to be valued. I mean, at least I, I value them. I think they're, I think they're great. Um, and, uh, well, and, and, so, and I bet nobody has read, you know, you biblical scholars and 1% of 1% have read it, but I don't. Yeah. Well, that's, that's part of what I try to do. I think that the, the stuff that you get from, you know, the rest of the first century and, you know, going on to the, se- the second century, I think the writings that are there are fantastic. Okay. And they're, um, you know, I think that historically, at least if you're looking at the early centuries, uh, you know, of, of the church, uh, these writings are also really valued. And even if you regard them as, you know, not necessarily revelation in the sense of uh, there's something normative to them, but something that is still really helpful for interpreting and understanding and applying scripture. Uh, I think that these, these writings are, are, are great. And I think they're part of the common inheritance of all Christians. So um, anyway, that's right, just to say, right. so, with, so with, just to say, uh, just because they're not canonical, that, that doesn't mean that they're wrong in any way. Nobody says, Oh, this is heresy. Don't read that. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Now you can have writings that are like, heretical that are that I think self consciously are doing something different from what the uh, the Christianity of you know the great church is uh, does and practices. I use the, the term uh, the great church because it's actually the the term that uh, Celsus, who is uh, a pagan critic of Christianity. Uh, you know what he identifies as main mainstream Christianity. He calls it, you know, the, the Christianity of, of of the great church. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, you do have, you know, Gnostics, other other, you know, heretics who go and write things that are, um, I guess you could say, that are putting things out that are uh, that are quite, you know, self consciously going against the received tradition and saying, actually, we have a, here's a, here's a different thing. Here's a different yeah. story. We think that all that's wrong. We're going to go a different thing. Um, but something not being canonical does not mean that it's necessarily in that category because you have, you have tons of writings from, from the early Christians that are great and hugely valuable uh, that just don't happen to be part of, you know, what is, what's, what's, what's canonized. And so um, anyway, it just, it's helpful to, to, uh, to take those as, uh, you know, 
occasionally overlapping, but definitely non-equivalent categories. Well, and I just think that there's a, a, a real mystery with a capital M here, or a miracle, really, that we kept a cohesive narrative and church through such a time, you know, first through like an underground church and then so many people doing talking to each other, and yet it all stayed the same. And I just, I find that, um, I, I think, you know, I think one could say this is evidence of the Holy Spirit acting among people. Because if I asked you, tell me the story of Robin Hood, I bet you mm. I'll find you a hundred, if not a, you know, a thousand or, 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 or something like that. Or, you know, or yeah. like, what, tell me the authoritative version of Batman. You know, he's been around for less than a hundred years, but there's so many, uh, you know, people who've spun it and changed it and, and made it interesting, you know, and with, yeah. but uh, clearly here somehow, somehow yeah. there's agreement. Well, I think that, you know, it comes back to a recognition that something definitive in all of human history had taken place before their eyes and, you know, and what Christ had done. And then in the way that that was then transmitted by his his apostles. And so I think it comes from that recognition of the definitive character that's there and why it is that you know everything that uh you know everything that he was you know kind of recorded has said in these gospels and then everything that uh, was was you know written by his apostles that he sent out why you would have it preserved and copied over and over and over and over and over again and you know valued in the way that it was um, and did, because did that come out with reflection because you know when we when we're reading the gospels clearly nobody sees things Nobody, you know, everybody's confused about what's going on. What's going on here, Rabbi? What's going on here, Lord? But uh, given the time to talk it over after a year, after two years, after three years, they all came to this conclusion that we now have as the, you know, the foundational creed of the the church. You know, it's interesting because I think each of the four Gospels, um, they each, I think, are clearly... um, telling you the same story and what is recognizable as historically the same story. And at some points you can say, even seem to take for granted that you already know the outline of the story. I think that, you know, most people, not all, most people think that uh, John's gospel, for instance, you know, takes, takes for granted that the, the, you know, the reader already knows the gospel of Mark and knows the narrative as it's, as outlined in the gospel of Mark, because, you know, when he introduces characters, for instance, when he introduces, you know, Simon Peter, uh, in the beginning, he kind of already assumes that you know mm-hmm. who these people are. And so there is, while, while you have that, in, in a sense, um, uh, there is a kind of, of coordination, um, which is, you can, you can, you can recognize. Um, they also, each of these four witnesses are, I think, real independent witnesses. I think that they each, if you, you know, I, I taught a, a course on the four gospels, um, this time this time last year and they really they each do their own thing they each have their own set of eyes that they're seeing with and they each have you know their their own tongue that they're going and speaking with and their own kind of kind of idiom and uh each of them is a real author you know, and you can say, you, I mean, as as Catholics, you believe that you know Scripture is fully human and and fully divine. The way that Christ is fully human and full, fully divine, um, and but it's possible, I think, sometimes to go and to forget um, that full humanity of the authors. That the you know that that is something that you know God ordained and likes that um, each of them. You know, you're going through the Greek. Each of them has their own idiom they have their own style they have their own way that they write they're real human beings going and testifying to the word of life that they've gone and encountered and i i just think that's really cool i love that the the analogy i use sometimes in, in classes is if um if you think of like a some you know some big mountain somewhere and you think of mm-hmm. four people standing north south east and west in relation to it um, and then going and writing down and kind of drawing you a, you know, a picture and describing what it is that, that they go and see from the kinds of angles that's there. That's kind of what it's like reading the four gospels and yeah. that there's certain things that you see that are kinds of points of emphasis, which is just 
yeah, from that person's situatedness, there are things about that mountain that they can see that they go and they pull, they pull out for you and it's incredible. And then there might be something else that somebody on the other side goes and sees that you wouldn't have really seen represented much at all or even necessarily hinted at within the first one, but which is absolutely true in relation to when you're standing on the north side of the mountain, you, you can see this thing here. And, uh, and so it's great. It's, it's, it's incredible how you have both of those, uh, both of those qualities, both the kind of, again, that, the, the continuity, the, the, the mutual intelligibility um, of the four gospels, but also that they're all, they all have their own real vantage point and their own real integrity. That, I love that analogy. Um, I, I have to interrupt us because my students will be here <laughs> in a little bit. Um, so I, what, I, I'm so grateful to you. I have more questions than I had when we started. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, um, That's I don't fantastic. know if you, what, what your schedule is like going forward, if we could do this every week or every month. or um, We can do this. We can do this every day as far as I'm concerned. All right. <laughs> I love I love this stuff. So. <laughs> Matthew Thomas, thank you so much for, for talking with me today. Um, I've learned so much, and I, I'm looking forward to our our next our next conversation may be very soon. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Christopher Dinitz and Matthew Thomas recorded this conversation on Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. The Feast of the Conversion of Paul. Our music, What Child Is This?, is by Josh and Margot from the band The Great Space Coaster. Find their music at www.gscoasterband.com. The Image of the Dog, our logo is from a stained glass window at the monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the permission of the Dominican friars of England, Wales, and Scotland from their website, english.op.org. My name is Chris Odinitz. Please email me with comments, questions, ideas at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Talk to you soon. Shepherds, God, and angels sing.